0: Welcome to the very first episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media.
1: We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity.
0: i and I'm here with Walter Smolarik and our host, Brian Becker. We'll be going in-depth on Biden's cabinet picks today, and then we have an interview with the anti-racist organizers in Denver who are fighting for justice for Elijah McLean and have been retaliated against with serious felony charges and are now facing 48 years in prison. But first, we'll go over some of today's biggest headlines.
2: This week saw the first wave of major appointments to the incoming Biden administration. Longtime Biden aide Anthony Blinken was tapped to serve as Secretary of State. Blinken was a high-ranking State Department official in the Obama administration, where he supported the war on Libya, bombing Syria, and was a supporter of the JCPOA-Iran nuclear deal. Janet Yellen will receive the nomination to head the Treasury Department. Yellen previously served in various capacities at the Federal Reserve, including as its chair during a period generally characterized by accommodative monetary policy favored by Wall Street. Alejandro Mayorkas will be nominated to lead the Department of Homeland Security. He led United States Citizenship and Immigration Services and later was Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security in the Obama administration, which carried out historic levels of deportations far exceeding the Trump administration. Other picks include Jake Sullivan as national security advisor. Hold on, let me actually. Other picks include Jake Sullivan as national security advisor and John Kerry as special presidential envoy on climate. The coronavirus is continuing to spread rapidly, with well over 100,000 new cases per day nationwide for 20 days in a row. At the height of the July boom, the highest number of new cases registered in a single day was 73,000, and this figure stood at 34,000 on the worst day in April. In the last week, there are four days where more than 1,000 people were reported to have died from the coronavirus. Saudi Arabia's foreign minister today denied reports that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu held a secret meeting with a country's de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, last week. Israeli media outlets reported over the weekend that the meeting took place and that US Secretary of State Pompeo was involved, but the Saudi foreign minister claimed that quote, the only officials present were American and Saudi. In recent months, several Arab states have normalized relations with Israel, a move condemned by Palestinians and their supporters as a historic betrayal. These normalization agreements, in addition to securing short-term concessions from the United States, also aimed to present a united front of countries in the region that are hostile to Iran. Although Donald Trump continues to claim that there was widespread election fraud, despite not providing any evidence of this, he has relented and instructed the General Services Administration to begin the presidential transition. Trump tweeted yesterday, quote, Our case strongly continues. We will keep up the good fight, and I believe we will prevail. Nevertheless, in the best interests of our country, I am recommending that Emily, meaning Emily Murphy at the GSA, and her team do what needs to be done with regard to initial protocols and have told my team to do the same. This move will unlock federal funding for Biden's transition team.
1: All right, Walter, thank you so much for the headlines. Nicole, we're going to spend most of this first half hour talking about what the Biden cabinet looks like. All governments around the world are looking at the cabinet picks. They're looking at them because they're trying to make out with some degree of nuance. What does a Biden administration mean for them, for whatever respective country is trying to make that assessment? And of course, for the people of the United States and 70 million plus voted to get rid of Donald Trump, I think most of them were voting to get rid of Donald Trump, not really caring that much about Joe Biden, as long as his name wasn't Donald Trump, they were going to vote for him. That's why Biden is president. But what Biden does and what the cabinet looks like, the the signals it sends about what the policies, foreign and domestic, of the Biden administration will, of course, have a huge impact on the American people. And I think that it's critically important that we take a hard look at the Biden administration, because again, there's a certain honeymoon period, especially for people who are against Donald Trump and his reactionary, racist, misogynist, xenophobic, warlike policies. There was a certain kind of romance with the idea that Biden represents something new, something different. And as a consequence, the great nightmare of Donald Trump will have come to an end and a new rosy dawn will open for the United States. And we want to take a hard look because. In fact, there should be no honeymoon period for this very hard right, pro Wall Street, pro Pentagon, pro war administration. And when I say all of those uh, characterizations, I also should include that it's a racist administration, that it's pro police, it's against uh, reform to stop the epidemic of killings of black and brown people in America. Again, it inherits the legacy of Obama on immigration, where Obama was known as deporter-in-chief. Anyway, we want to look at all of the, 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 what the real meaning is of the cabinet picks by Joe Biden. But before we do, Nicole, I, I think it's appropriate to stop and just recognize the other huge tragedy that has befallen the people of this country, and that's COVID. I mean, we have a COVID epidemic that was so badly managed, criminally managed by the Trump administration, and the Democratic officials didn't do much better. And I would include in that Bill de Blasio. Uh, But, you know, when you think about what COVID has done to the American people, to the especially to the working class and to the poor, it's so devastating. And again, when you look at the mainstream media, while, while mentioned It's less important than what Donald Trump is saying, what his latest tweet is or what Joe Biden's cabinet picks are. I'm looking I'm looking at the front page of Reuters news service right now. Here's the headline. We are drowning covid cases, flood hospitals in America's heartland after pounding U.S. Cities, big U.S. cities in the spring, COVID-19 now has engulfed rural and small-town America, seeming to seep into the country's every nook and cranny. And the the great tragedy here, Nicole, is that in this, the richest country in the world, if the U.S. government, including not just Trump, but the Democrats in Congress, and they controlled the House, had said, look, we're going to shut the whole country down, but no worker is going to lose their 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 job. We're going to make sure that every worker is paid their their wage so that they can go home and not feel that they've lost everything, that they're uh, approaching utter financial ruin, that they're going to be evicted from their apartment or foreclosed on their house. If the US government, both parties, both ruling class parties had done that, we wouldn't have a situation where uh, America's rural heartland is drowning right now in COVID cases. I mean. Talk about a criminal system and its criminal actions. It can't beat this.
0: It can't. And what's even more frustrating is, and frankly, you know, criminal is as we're moving now into holiday season, this, you know, this season where families get together, where people actually are able to, even under capitalism, take a short break and actually reconnect with family and friends. What you're seeing now from administrations of both parties of of localities, of states, of people across, officials across the country, you're seeing this essentially passing the buck continue, where these officials are saying, don't see family, don't see anyone, make sure that you stay indoors, don't call anyone, don't do anything, when... This is not I mean, we should be cautious. We should wear masks. We should socially distance. We should be taking precautions. But there's not testing available for people to try to mitigate risks. The reality is that humans are social and we need to be able to see people. And, you know, there's one article that I found talking a little bit about this. And one epidemiologist, Ellie Murray, said about uh, political leaders, Quote, it seems like they're passing off the responsibility for controlling the outbreak to individuals and individual choices. A pandemic is more a failure of the system than the failure of individual choices. Unquote. The biggest risks and the biggest outbreaks are still in nursing homes, in prisons, in these in restaurants. There's still indoor dining allowed in some places. And yet I'm not allowed to go outside for a walk, even with a mask on in certain places. This is completely you know, just like what this epidemiologist says, this is a failure of the system. And this is a failure of this administration and so many administrations on the state and local level as well.
2: And and here's another aspect of it. I mean, since the pandemic began at the beginning of this year, it appears that the United States has constructed no additional health infrastructure. I mean, there are uh, hospitals, especially in the Midwest, that are running out of beds or are completely out of beds in their uh, intensive care units to handle the influx, massive influx of new coronavirus cases that they have to deal with. Uh, There's short staffing Um, In addition to there just being a a shortage in general of trained health professionals because of the long-term neglect of the medical system, uh, the economic crisis has actually led to mass layoffs, shockingly, in the healthcare sector. Uh, And the government has done essentially nothing uh, to build new hospitals, new medical facilities train new people to work in those facilities. Uh, you see, you know, in, in other countries, like in China, for instance, you know, they constructed new field hospitals in literally a matter of days. Um, but even in these months, these last, you know, four or five months where there was a relative lull in the coronavirus cases where the United States had the opportunity to make sure that the health system didn't become overwhelmed with new cases, which is when you really see the death toll start to spike because people aren't able to get the care they need, uh, the U.S. government chose to do essentially nothing.
1: Exactly. And, and all of the, the corporate-owned media, which again includes mostly anti-Trump media, they spent the entire first period of the, of the COVID crisis, and they've spent most of the remaining time attacking China. They're always attacking China. I mean, the fact of the matter is China is open for business. The people in Hubei province, a a province of 70 million, a province that was entirely shut down by the Chinese government, and that was labeled by the US media as as a sign of totalitarianism and authoritarianism and the rule of communists and the negation of democracy and the negation of free speech and individual rights. The people in Wuhan today, everybody... In Hubei province, Wuhan is the, the center of it, uh, they are, go to work. They can see their families. They can have recreational events. They are COVID-free. And because the government took strong action in a central planned way and also made sure that people were not massively laid off and lost wages and didn't have a way to eat or or to remain in their homes, they were able to get the support of the population. And as a consequence, because they were proactive, uh, Wuhan and Hubei province, generally speaking, and China and China writ large, uh, they're COVID free. Now, again, I Walter, you made an excellent point. It's not only that has no health uh, care infrastructure, emergency health care infrastructure been developed. Right now, as we're getting perhaps close to a, a, a vaccine coming. Uh, The states are unprepared for its delivery. There's no central infrastructure for the delivery of vaccines. So there's all these articles now appearing. All 50 states are scrambling. Each state has to find the money. They have to find their own plan, their own infrastructure. Uh, Some of the states are already staggering under new COVID cases. Uh, Many of them have budget uh, deficits and and, uh, sort of budget holes because of the loss of tax revenues, because of the loss of jobs. And so they're not prepared. I mean, when you think of this system and and the American government tells the American people, we're exceptional, we're great, we're wonderful. The reason that's the, quote, richest country in the world is that Americans love freedom and we have a freedom-loving system. No, the United States ruling class uh, amass great wealth, Because one, it hasn't been devastated by war after war as happened to the countries in Europe and Asia. It hasn't been colonized as happened to the countries in Latin America and Africa and the Middle East and Asia. And also because it grew strong and rich on the on the backs of unpaid labor, of the the labor of kidnapped African people, enslaved people, and, and the enslavement of people for centuries. And of course, by the theft of the land of indigenous people and the colonization of those places around the world that the United States was able to send its military. I mean, that's why the ruling class in America became strong and rich. And that's why people can say, this is the richest country in the world. But is this the best system of government? Is this the best economy? No, not by a long shot. The fact of the matter is, That the United States system has proven itself to be a complete and utter failure. And this is the failure of capitalism, Nicole. This is we, we call our program the socialist program. We're trying to, you know, bring a socialist perspective to the news of the world, to the struggles that people are engaged in around the world, and also to provide a definition to socialism. And to also understand that there must be an alternative to the current system, the political and economic system, the social order, capitalism, there has to be an alternative. And what we're suggesting, well, we're demanding, is that that social order is socialism. But first, let's just talk again, and then we're going to go to the Biden cabinet, to when you think back to the past seven months, what's happened? COVID-19, a mass uprising against racism, met with ferocious repression by the state. Uh, And then you have millions of people who are still suffering, long, long, long food lines in in places all over the country. Uh, It's an amazing demonstration of a system that doesn't work.
0: It is exactly that, Brian. And that is why I was so dismayed and so taken aback in shock to read yesterday an article in the Washington Post entitled Washington's Establishment Hopes a Biden Presidency Will Make Schmoozing Great Again. It starts off, Washington is exhausted. Washington is optimistic. Washington is desperate for change. It goes on to say, at the center of this hope is President-elect Biden, moderate by nature, attuned to the rhythms of the town, eager to bring people back together. The Bidens, quote, know how to get around Washington, how to be a part of the establishment, how to make it work for them in their everyday lives, unquote, says an influential Republican hostess who, like many of the city's social leaders, spoke on the condition of anonymity to speak frankly without retribution. This article goes on to detail how everyone, quote unquote, everyone in Washington, the elites of of Washington's host scene, are very excited to get Biden into the White House so they can go on having their their galas, their fundraising, their parties, their diplomatic state dinners. And this is written without not not tongue in cheek. And this is written in the context that you just described, Brian. This is written. And by the way, quotes people from both parties, quotes uh, former staff and officials and appointees from the Bush administration who, you know, George W. Bush started wars, started, you know, killed and was responsible for the death of you know a million people or more and yet this is this is the kind of reporting we're getting from the washington post and it's not just about the fact that the washington post is reporting it although that is strange in and of itself although this is the mouthpiece i from what i can tell for the washington elite but it is uh, it is very true it seems that this is in fact how washington's quote unquote elite feels when the last time i went for a bike ride i saw more and more homeless encampments popping up around the city when there were already so many. There are more empty housing units that are not filled, that are not in use. There's more of those than there are people who need homes. I mean, this is unconscionable and absolutely the effect of U.S. capitalism.
1: Nicole, I'm glad you you raised that. There's an article in today's Washington Post. The title is... Biden's nominees have pushed policies that Trump used to fuel his rise. It's a fairly important and interesting article, not because, well, you'd have to to parse the language. And in fact, I I wanna do that in this segment because I wanna help our audience sort of understand what the the post is actually saying. Because again, they're all written as puff pieces, they're written as propaganda. But to your point, in the, in the more superficial but telling element of the article, uh, they describe this new group, uh, this new group of cabinet picks like this. Biden's picks are all known quantities whose nominations signal a return to a more predictable era of American policy. Mm, th- that would suggest war after war after war. I mean, if you're thinking about predictability. Uh, many of the picks have spent most of their adult lives in Washington, forging deep relationships with those who have done the same and finding familiarity in the think tank speaking tour circuit, in the cocktail party crowds, and in writing for wonky but influential publications. They all have long standing relationships with Republican lawmakers, which could smooth their confirmation hearings. And open the possibility of some bipartisanship, and they have and they are well known among NATO and Middle Eastern allies. Okay, I want to talk about this article. I mean that sort of the first part, the superficial part, but it's it's telling because it shows, as you described, Nicole, that they're really they're all part of the same team. They're the the professional state. They're the ones who basically run the state apparatus. They are. If not the CEO, they're the deputy CEO of this or that department of the state apparatus. Now, the the term "deep state" became very popular during the Trump era. Uh, we reject that concept. There is a deep state, but it, it, let's just call it the state. I mean, the state is a system of coercion. The state, state, no matter wh- who's the government. Uh, if you have a government and you have an army and you have an intelligence agency and you have prisons, and if you have courts, and those are managed regardless of who holds office at some particular moment in the continuum, that's an ongoing state, and it has its own rhythm, it has its own professional norms, it has its own world outlook, it has its own consensus positions. In the case of America, which, beca- which not only has a ruling class, but it has a ruling class that has become the dominant ruling class, not simply for uh, the 50 states of the United States, but the dominant power globally, the state apparatus, the professional state, the so-called deep state, it has a consensus position and a worked out system of norms and operations and strategies uh, with all of the attendant logistics, not only for the United States, but but around the world. Now, what were the policies that uh, Trump Used to fuel his rise, the policy that the Biden nominees have previously supported. I want to start with one. Normally, people start when they look at a cabinet and say, Does this mean we're going to go to war? Is this a war cabinet? And certainly, with Anthony Blinken and Michelle Flournoy possibly as Secretary of Defense, and we're going to talk about both of them, one could certainly make the case that this is indeed a war cabinet. Although I think we want to get into some of the nuance here and some of the limitations and restrictions on the Biden administration, not because the individuals are peace-loving and not because they're not pro-war, but because there's a limitation on American power. We're gonna talk about that, but I wanna start with a different issue. In a recent pre-election interview with the Washington Post, Blinken, that's the new Secretary of State, said that a Biden victory sends a powerfully positive jolt through the international system that America is back but then you have to act on that, close quote. He acknowledged that Trump had strained global alliances and often isolated the United States on the world stage in a way that will test the Biden administration's ability to calibrate its diplomatic approach. The central dilemma, Blinken said, is that the world now requires more, rather than less collective action, and yet rising nationalism, eroding faith in government, faltering institutions, make the international cooperation we need harder than ever to achieve. While Biden's team has advertised the reversal of Trump's actions as its main objective, some of the president-elect's aides have acknowledged that Trump's victory in 2016 forced them to question previously held beliefs. Sullivan, now that's Jake Sullivan, who is going to be the national security advisor, who supported the Obama administration's Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Pact, that's TPP, has since acknowledged that, get, get this, Democrats overlooked the potentially negative consequences of such trade deals on American workers. These are the Impacts that Trump blamed both his 2016 opponent Hillary Clinton and Biden for destroying manufacturing jobs with the NAFTA trade deal. In in a September report, Sullivan underscored how trade deals can drive employers to pull out of U.S. communities and disrupt the likely livelihoods of people with few available alternatives. Democrats have frequently responded to this problem with federally funded economic assistance programs, which Sullivan said were, quote, too little, too late. Uh, Walter, they, uh, they, they underscored how trade deals could drive employers to pull out of U.S. communities and disrupt the livelihoods of people. They, underscored, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what TPP would have been. They didn't understand what NAFTA was or what all the other trade deals that developed in the 1990s and in the 2000s, they didn't get it. And now they have to like understand it. I don't think so. No, of course, that's
2: completely ridiculous. All of these trade agreements, you know, popularly known as neoliberal trade agreements, right? Meaning that they, favor big corporations and financial institutions over the working class has been a centerpiece of elite u.s economic strategy thinking for for decades i mean really since the 1973 economic crisis this has been the way that u.s capitalism accumulates greater and greater and greater wealth is by uh, increasingly becoming internationalized if a worker in the united states because of you know the historic gains of the union movement the labor movement would need to be paid say twenty dollars an hour to manufacture a product uh, these agreements are designed to facilitate that corporation going to another country where maybe you could pay that worker one dollar an hour. Um, I mean it's it's all about creating this global race to the bottom. Uh, And by the way, you know, when demagogues like Donald Trump come along and try to pit workers in one country against another, that's completely missing the point. I mean, the the fact that these trade agreements exist means that the working class struggle needs to become more internationalized, not less. But but that aside, I mean, clearly uh, the trade agreements create a race to the bottom and they have all sorts of other provisions in there as well. So the the Trans-Pacific Partnership in particular Strengthen something uh, to, you know, perhaps unprecedented levels if it was actually implemented. Uh, it's it's something called investor-state dispute settlement, uh, and essentially what this means is that under these free trade agreements, NAFTA being one of them, the TPP being one that was proposed, but you know the United States didn't end up joining, there are these essentially secret courts that are set up. Um, that are staffed by uh, usually it's retired corporate lawyers. They're the quote unquote judges in these, in these fake kangaroo courts. And if a big corporation who has the resources to do it doesn't like a regulation or doesn't like that uh, perhaps you know some of their company's assets were were nationalized or if they don't like anything that a government does in the realm of economic policy, they can sue that government. They can take that government to court and say, this is interfering with our profits or our potential future profits. Uh, we could make money if we were allowed to do X, Y, or Z terrible, exploitative, harmful thing, but the government won't let us. We're suing them. Uh, please, ex-corporate lawyers, allow us to do it. That's, that's the kind of uh, quote-unquote legal system that these trade agreements set up. The TPP had, had other terrible Qualities as well. I mean, there is, uh, for instance, a giveaway to the ph- big pharmaceutical industry where they would be allowed to extend their exclusive patents on life saving medications beyond what they're already permitted to do. There was a giveaway to the big banks because financial instruments were, uh, you know, if it was legal in one country, these exotic, weird, bizarre, uh, not understandable financial products would be legal in all other countries. So, yeah, I mean, it is a 100%
1: corporate giveaway. I want to I want to jump back in here real quick. Uh. These secret courts under the the investor dispute resolution mechanisms of free trade agreements means that corporate lawyers decide in secret whether or not a government could use labor regulations or environmental regulations or any other uh, government action that would be good for people, but impede or limit profits or future profits on corporations, the secret courts could overrule the government actions, and the government or other entities in that country would have to pay the harmed corporation. Now, all of these free trade agreements—they're not free trade. It's not about free trade. Uh, free trade, by the way, you know, when you think to the transatlantic slave trade, that was also free trade. So people shouldn't put like a little halo over the term free trade which America does. America, The American bourgeoisie equates free trade with freedom, where socialists would equate uh, freedom under the bourgeois system, whether it's free labor or free trade, free investment is the right to freely exploit labor, which is what the real freedom is. Uh, but again, all of the language is more or less turned upside down. The free trade agreements are basically corporate trade agreements designed to knock down any pro-worker pro-environmental regulation that any government in the world enacted to protect its own people its own country its own resources its own sovereignty I uh, I was in uh, I was in the southern part of Mexico uh, in the in January, nineteen ninety-four. NAFTA was approved and became law, became US law on January first, nineteen ninety-four. The Zapatistas had an armed uprising in the southern part of Mexico. And what the Zapatista Uprising, the slogan that they used as the as the sort of point of mobilization, was NAFTA would be a death sentence for the indigenous corn farmers and corn growing farmers in the southern part of Mexico, because it would allow U.S. agribusiness to come in and sell corn at a cheaper price than can be produced and sold by indigenous rural farmers. And they said it would drive those farmers and those communities into into starvation. And in fact, that's precisely what happened. Uh, the, The American corn growers came in, undersold the rural indigenous peasant corn growers. They could sell their corn at a cheaper price. They drove them out of business. And then they raised the price of corn after they had destroyed the local uh, the business. At the same time, American auto factories were being shut down in, in Toledo, in Flint, Michigan, in Detroit, in Midwestern, the so-called Rust Belt. It became rusty uh, after the factories left that the industrial heartland of the United States, the setup up shop uh, all along the northern border between U.S. and Mexico, the northern I- inside of Mexico, where, as as Walter said, workers were paid next to nothing by American wage standards. I mean, this wasn't a policy that these officials were unaware of. They weren't unaware that they were going to devastate Flint, Michigan. They were completely aware. They didn't care. In fact, this is exactly what they wanted to do because they were serving corporate interests. So we can anticipate that they're going to downplay free trade agreements. Again, that's a a flashpoint. But let's talk about the rest of the cabinet and what at least at least, what they've been saying in recent months, when they were all auditioning for the job, when they were writing articles for foreign affairs or giving interviews with the Washington Post or the New York Times, they were all both auditioning for their new positions and at the same time signaling some of what the foreign policy team or the other cabinet positions uh, concepts are for domestic and foreign policy. Uh, most notably, Walter, uh, it's the big three. It's the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and the National Security Advisor who constitute the most important positions for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you know, that has been the case for a long time. Sometimes there was a strong Secretary of State and a weak National Security Advisor, uh, et cetera. Sometimes those positions rotated. For instance, in, when Nixon was elected president in 1968, his national security advisor was Henry Kissinger. Uh, the Secretary of State was William Rogers. Kissinger, not Rogers, was the real chief diplomat and the architect of U.S. foreign policy strategy. Then in the second Nixon term, Henry Kissinger became State Department uh, Secretary of State. So those kind of struggles or nuanced positions, who's more, who's more powerful, et cetera, et cetera, that goes on inside of every administration. But Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, National Security Advisor. Those are the key foreign policy positions. It's noteworthy, I think, that before the Secretary of Defense position has been announced, Anthony Blinken has been chosen by Joe Biden, nominated by Joe Biden to be Secretary of State. That means Blinken is, at the moment, the central foreign policy person inside the Biden administration. Thus, let's take a little bit of a a walk through history and see who Blinken is.
2: Right. So Blinken is somebody who has been part of the foreign policy, imperialist foreign policy establishment for a very long time. He was the deputy secretary of state in the Obama administration Uh, while he was in that role. He distinguished himself as a hardliner, a war hawk on several issues of uh, key importance, one being the bombing war against Libya, the, the destruction of Libyan society is what it ended up being. Uh, you know, Obama, President Obama, Robert Gates, who is the Secretary of Defense, uh, they were hesitant. They weren't sure about it. But Anthony Blinken was part of the faction that pushed hard, insisted on a bombing war to destroy the government of Libya, which plunged the country into chaos. Blinken was also an advocate of military strikes against the Syrian government—a dramatic, what would have been a dramatic escalation of that conflict. Um, but I mean, we we have to take a holistic look at this too, because Blinken is also somebody who advocates what could be considered and and uh, you know may feel like a shift in tactics from what we got from Pompeo and Trump. And other war hawks uh, over the last few years, like when when
1: Bolton, for instance, was the national security advisor. Because let me, but Walter, let me let me jump in here. So uh, talk a little bit more. Blinken uh, was in the Obama administration at the same time as Michelle Flournoy. Then they went on to become uh, partners. Uh, they're very they're, they're a think tank, well funded by you know pro military factions, uh, pro-military, well, military contractors and the think tanks that are funded by military contractors, et cetera, et cetera. Let's talk about that. But again, for our audience to understand, in 2011, starting on March 19th, the US government, along with Britain and France, so-called the NATO partners, began the unprovoked bombing campaign against Libya with the ultimate goal to overthrow the government of Muammar Gaddafi. Libya is the African country with the largest oil reserves. Gaddafi had been an independent political force since having taken power in a coup or a revolution. He closed down British and American military bases in Libya. Uh, Reagan had tried to assassinate Gaddafi with uh, airstrikes in the mid-1980s. He did succeed in killing Gaddafi's adopted two-year-old a child and many, many other civilians, but Gaddafi survived. So Blinken, Michelle Flournoy, and Hillary Clinton, who was then Secretary of State, they were the advocates for the war against Libya. Robert Gates, who was then Secretary of Defense, Obama, and Joe Biden were also hesitating and saying, well, wait, we don't have a big strategic interest. This is dangerous. We don't know if this should go forward. And then Blinken, Flournoy, and the Washington Post editorial team, the neocon Washington Post editorial team, which started you know, lashing Obama as the passive president. That was the lead editorial, the passive president denouncing him for his passivity rather than taking action, which meant to go to war. Then uh, Obama capitulated, And they went to war against Libya. Then Blinken, when you're talking about the possible strike against Syria, there have been so many. I want to remind the audience what this really was. In August, John Kerry, who was Secretary of State under Obama, another super hawk, said that the Assad government in Syria had crossed the red line that Obama had established and used chemical weapons, which turned out to be a completely unproven assertion and that Obama must show strength and go to war against Syria. If he had gone to war, it wasn't just missile strikes. If he had gone to war against Syria, Syria, which has allies, especially in the Iranian government, would have fought back. It wasn't Libya. It was much stronger. It had the support of Russia. Uh, That would have been a major regional war. Blinken and Flournoy and Hillary Clinton and the Washington Post, that's what they wanted. Obama was the restraint, and in fact, Biden joined them actually as a restraining force. Uh, and Gates, of course, represents a big part of the Pentagon, which also thought this is not a good idea. But the war happened uh, in Libya and almost happened in Syria. That's
2: right. Um, very important history to remember. There is something that's been completely glossed over and covered up. Um, you know, another uh, aspect of who Anthony Blinken is. Um, and and this is also related to Michelle Flournoy, is the firm West Exec Advisors. Uh, in the United States, bribery is what could be considered bribery, would be considered bribery in other countries, is a legal and regulated industry. Sometimes it's referred to as the influence industry. And so after the Obama administration uh, ended, after Trump became the president, Blinken and Flournoy and other well-connected officials in the foreign policy and military establishment created this firm called West Exec Advisors. Uh, and West Exec is uh, a reference to West Executive Avenue. So this is, let me just read from uh, an official publication by the company, by West Exec Advisors, explaining what, what their name means. It is quite literally the road to the situation room. And it is the road everyone associated with West exec advisors has crossed many times in route to meetings of the highest national security consequences. Um, So... WestExec Advisors is not technically a lobbying firm. There's a, a technicality that they get out of you know, having to formally register and therefore report who their clients are. So they have that going for them. Uh, but, but obviously, as you can tell from that sentence, the purpose of this firm is to cash in on all of the connections that these very, very influential people have in the military industrial complex and the foreign policy Establishment, um, it's it's really quite scummy and disgusting, and it also serves uh, apparently as as like this cabinet in waiting for the Biden administration, because so many officials who are uh, in Blinken's case, you know, confirmed in Flournoy's case, under serious consideration for top appointments uh, come come from them. It's kind of like an incubator.
1: All right, let's go to another. I want to come back to a, a couple more in terms of Blinken's. Uh, policy recommendations. I think it's interesting both on North Korea, China, and Russia. We're we're gonna come back to that, but let's go to another cabinet pick of Joe Biden, and that is the director of national intelligence, Avril Haynes. Nicole, what do we know about Avril Haynes?
0: Well we actually know quite a bit about Avril Haynes. She um has been in, in a couple of pretty powerful positions and one of them was as deputy director of the CIA in the Obama administration. Um, after she was at the CIA, she went directly into Obama's, uh, you know, administration. She became the deputy national security advisor. In that role, she essentially wrote Obama's drone playbook. I really, well, before I get into some of the things she's actually said and and the things written about her, um, when she was at the CIA as well, she was there, um, and became the deputy director of the CIA just in time to be able to totally dismiss any of any possible charges or any possible discipline against CIA staff who had hacked into the computers of Senate staffers who were writing the report at the time on CIA torture sites. It was a 6,700-page report that the Senate Intelligence Committee wrote, and the CIA staff again, had hacked, it was confirmed by the inspector general, the CIA staff had hacked into the computers of the, the very Senate staffers who were writing that report. And then she was put in charge of making a decision about discipline. And she went ahead and said, no, that's okay. They're fine. Not only did she choose not to discipline anyone at the CIA for this. And by the way, that choice was just weeks before she left the CIA to go straight into the Obama administration, which is notable because Eric Holder at the Justice Department also declined to have any charges brought against these CIA staff who had hacked into Senate computer staff. But before she left, Haynes was also the person who uh, redacted the Senate report on all of the all of this torture, this uh, this, you know, waterboarding, the really intensive torture that the CIA went about doing, she was the one who redacted the Senate report for public release um, and released, again, out of a 6,700-page report, she released a redacted 525-page portion. Not only all of that, not only all of that, she also uh, was one of the biggest proponents of Gina Haspel. Yes, Gina Haspel, the current CIA director, the CIA director who was in charge of uh, and involved in the operations of CIA secret black sites in 2002 and 2003. And Gina Haspel. Yes. The same Gina Haspel who admitted that she helped to destroy videotapes of torture by CIA interrogators. Haynes was one of her
1: after, after they, after they were ordered to keep the tapes, she destroyed, them. she destroyed them. Or, or that's the allegation. Uh,
0: well, and, and she admitted that she destroyed them. Um, But Haynes was one of Haspel's biggest proponents saying Haspel is, quote, intelligent, compassionate and fair. And she has, quote, an unparalleled understanding of the institution and the agency's work and unquote. And I'll say that she does have a lot of awareness of the agency's work. She was involved in some of the worst of it, including those black sites. But the fact that Haynes would come out and support that kind of thing is really, really telling to what she's okay with. Well, that's the the one thing I want to end with on Averill Haynes. I know this is a lot, but this part is important. Obama's deputy national security advisor, Benjamin Rhodes did say about Avril Haines, though, quote, "She may quite literally be the nicest person any of us have ever met." Unquote. So, I guess it's fine then. Never mind. She's she's probably.
1: I, I love I love I love that you know when when you're the ch- in charge of the drone program and the president sits down every I don't know whether it was Tuesday and he was like get he got that list. Uh, and he got the list about who was going to be killed that yeah. week because there was the, that those were the meetings. That was the drone program. Uh, our friend Medea Benjamin from Code Pink wrote an article saying that she believed based on the research she'd done that the U.S. under in the last year of the Obama administration had dropped perhaps twenty six thousand bombs or or missiles from drones uh, on the people of Somalia, people of Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Iraq in the last year, just the last year, the year 2016 of the Obama administration. Anyway, I I think it's important for our audience to understand that the one of the chief architects of that plan of that program was a very 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 nice person. Uh, let's go on, Nicole. Uh, there's a here's the Washington Post again. Biden also tapped Alejandro Mayorkas who held several posts in the Obama administration as the nation's first Latino homeland security secretary. Now, uh, what's 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 he going to be doing in the Biden administration and who is he?
0: So Alejandro Mayorkas has been it will likely be the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security Um, He was the deputy secretary of Homeland Security for the last four years of the Obama administration and was in the Obama administration as well um, for the first four years. So he was very much a part of the deportation machine that expelled historic numbers of people from this country. And a former acting director of ICE said about him, quote, he has strong law enforcement credentials and will hit the ground running. So I suspect that We can imagine there might be something similar, um, you know, from what we saw in the Obama administration here in the Biden administration. But the other really interesting thing about Mayorkas is that he was actually born in Cuba. Um, He was born to a family that owned his dad owned a factory that produced steel wool. And so, you know, because he was a wealthy capitalist. Um, in Cuba, when the, the revolution happened, his family left, his family left and moved to Miami, but he actually did not grow up in Miami, which had a lot of, and still does a lot of really, really right wing, um, anti-communist, anti Castro, um, you know, Cuban population there. He actually grew up in LA. So when he was in the Obama administration, he went to Cuba, had a very, very, uh, welcome and warm visit. It seems possible actually that Cuba will be happy with him in the administration, don't you think?
1: Well, let me, let me. yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that um, because, you know, there are two, two or three principal elements of the Obama administration's foreign policy achievements or things that they would consider signature achievements. One was the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. That's the Iran nuclear arms deal that Trump destroyed when he came in. And the second was the process of, well, not, well, yeah, normalizing relations with Cuba. It, it, the U.S. still imposed the blockade on Cuba. But in, in 2014, uh, the Cuban Five were released from prison and the U.S. and Cuba exchanged embassies for the first time in 54 years. The U.S. opened an embassy in Havana and Cuba opened an embassy in Washington. And of course, we know that Trump also, has basically tried to shred and did shred a great deal of the initial steps towards normalization with Cuba, uh, just as he destroyed the JCPOA, uh, made travel harder, put all kinds of restrictions, basically depleted the U.S. embassy in Havana, expelled Cuban diplomats, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, Majorca's uh, was an interlocutor for the Obama administration as it developed behind the scenes negotiations leading to the reopening of the embassies between uh, US and Cuba. So yes, I agree with you. I think the Cubans are going to look at this and uh, they're not going to be focused fundamentally on Majorca's role as, as part of the deportation machine in the homeland security, but what it might be in an indication of, in terms of the Biden administration's foreign policy towards Cuba. Uh, not that he will be central to it. Of course, that will be the Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, etc. They will be more important. But by all indications, Blinken too, uh, along with the other new cabinet officials, will favor or could favor a return to Obama's policy on Cuba. Again, it doesn't mean that they're friends of Cuba. It doesn't mean that they will end the blockade on Cuba. But uh, as Obama said, the U.S. policy towards Cuba was isolating the U.S., not Cuba, from the rest of Latin America. And as, and as Obama said, the policy just didn't work because it didn't carry out, uh, it didn't carry out regime change. Let's go on, uh, Walter. I want to go back to Anthony Blinken on a couple key issues, and then we're going to wrap up here. Uh, one is, and we have another segment of our interview, which I'm really anxious to do, which is with the the folks in Denver who are facing decades in prison uh, because they were leading peaceful protests uh, against the brutal police murder of Elijah McClain. Uh, I want to we want to get to that interview, but I w- let's go back to Blinken because there are some clues in Blinken's comments in the past months about what the orientation of the Biden administration. Will be on China and North Korea and Russia. Will it represent something of a change or continuity from the trump uh, from the trump White House orientation? Let's first start on on China, uh, Walter right. So with China,
3: I think
2: there are some indications that the Biden administration, while pursuing the same fundamental policy framework, which is called great power competition, essentially this Drive towards, uh, you know, global confrontation with both China and Russia, primarily China. That fundamental framework is going to remain in place, but under Blinken, the tactics used to pursue it may change. And so, this is particularly true on on one sort of big issue in U.S.-China relations called economic decoupling. Uh, the argument is basically that you know the United States and China's economies are so tightly interwoven. Uh, that that becomes a break on conflict between the two countries, and so the decoupling, the separation of those two economies, is a necessary prerequisite for you know truly all-out confrontation. Um, Blinken has gone on record saying that he's skeptical that he opposes decoupling the U.S. and Chinese economies, and when you look at that from the perspective. Of the managers of U.S. empire, it kind of it kind of makes sense. I mean, when the United States has economic relations with a country, that can turn into political influence. The U.S. can try to cultivate a pro-U.S. wing of the Chinese political and economic establishment, and it's also good for U.S. businesses. I mean, that's why they keep pumping in billions and billions and billions of dollars of investment into China over the past, you know, forty years or so. Um, so, so this tariffs, the economic war. That might take a backseat to um, you know, neoliberal trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, on Russia, uh, Blinken is a big supporter of NATO, the NATO Military Alliance. The whole purpose of NATO has always been to prepare for war with Russia. Trump was criticized for being insufficiently supportive of NATO, and I think one of the big priorities for Blinken will be, uh, quote-unquote, reassuring our NATO allies that the United States is committed to its traditional alliances that have allowed it to dominate the globe so thoroughly.
1: Yeah. Uh, Again, Blinken spoke before the US Chamber of Commerce in September of this year. And he said, as you mentioned, trying to fully decouple, this is a quote, trying to fully decouple, as some have suggested from China, is unrealistic and ultimately counterproductive, putting ourselves in a position of strength from which uh, he said, "What we the Bi- what an incoming Biden administration would do would be quote putting ourselves in a position of strength from which to engage China." Now, uh, I want to I want to also read. I want to go back to that Washington Post article that I started with. And here's a quote from Blinken. By every metric, China's position is stronger and ours is weaker as a result of President Trump's leadership. His actions have helped advance most of China's strategic goals, weakening American alliances, withdrawing America from the world, and leaving a vacuum for China to fill, a green light to trample on human rights and democracy, debasing our own democracy by attacking it. And then get this. I love this. Still, Blinken and others have suggested that the era of American interventionism is probably fading. And while he has robustly rejected Trump's America First philosophy, many in the foreign policy establishment are still grappling with what comes next. That's the Post writer. Here's Blinken. The fact is, whatever tolerance most Americans had for the global role the United States embraced after World War II. It began to fade with the collapse of the Soviet Union and was shattered by the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Whoever wins office in 2020 will have a hard time bucking a trend that preceded Trump and will likely survive him. That's an editorial he wrote for The Post, with uh, Robert Kagan, who is the godfather, the ideological godfather of neoconservatism, uh, which guided the George W. Bush, Dick Cheney wars of intervention uh, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, everywhere. Now, I'm I'm sorry. Whatever toler—this is the post what or Blinken. Whatever tolerance most Americans had for the global role the United States embraced after World War II. It began to fade with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and was shattered by the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is propaganda, everybody. This is BS. A uh, fact of the matter is the American people. I, I think they. I think they objected to the embrace of America's global role during World War II because that same language, that euphemistic language was used to invade Vietnam and the war went on for 10 years and 58,000 Americans died and millions of Vietnamese died. And there was a political civil war virtually in the United States over the US role in Vietnam. Uh, the Korean war, which is called uh, the hidden war, the forgotten war. I mean, Harry Truman left office in 1953 with an approval rating of 23%, because guess what? In spite of the witch hunt that drove the American anti-war movement underground, uh, the American people opposed the Korean War. It wasn't just Iraq and Afghanistan. The American people haven't had a, quote, tolerance for intervention. The reason Blinken is saying that the era of interventionism might be ending is because America has been on the losing side it lost in afghanistan everybody it lost in vietnam it lost in, before that it couldn't defeat the north koreans it tried to it invaded north korea and was driven back by the north koreans and the chinese the us lost in vietnam it lost in afghanistan the us is preparing to leave afghanistan and there will be a taliban government the us lost in Af, in, in iraq Uh, In spite of all of the predictions of Cheney and Rumsfeld and Bush, the fact of the matter is the Iraqis didn't run out and put flowers at the end of the barrels of the guns of American occupiers. They started to shoot them, and it only began to come to an end when the American government decided to pay resistance fighters not to shoot them. That's how the war came to an end, in essence, and that led, of course, to the, the emergence ultimately of ISIS as well. I mean, one debacle after another. The fact of the matter is, while the U.S. has been engaged in losing war after war after war, uh, other countries have gotten back on their feet. That's how Russia got back on its feet. It wasn't the target for a little while of U.S. imperialism. The U.S. was bogged down in the Middle East. And in the case of China, China rose peacefully um, and economically because the U.S. was too bogged down in endless war in the Middle East to be able to Uh, do what it normally does to a rising power, which is to try to crush it. And so that's why Obama in Australia in 2011 said the U.S. should pivot towards Asia. And that's why he had the JCPOA, the negotiated arms deal or arms agreement with Iran. The U.S. wanted to get out of having war after war after war, conflict after conflict in the Middle East to focus on a bigger geostrategic prize, and that would be China. Now, I want to end this segment, and we'll we'll do more in coming segments next week in particular on the emerging Biden administration. We'll talk about what its domestic policy looks like. But I want to go back to what Blinken said about North Korea. And this, I think, is extremely important. And I'm sure the North Koreans are paying careful attention to it. Uh, Blinken said, Trump's approach towards North Korea had failed. But he also said, quote, there was some merit in President Trump throwing the deck of cards up in the air and seeing what came of it, because the fact of the matter is that the policy that successive administrations have pursued over the last decades has not worked. That would include the Obama administration that he was a part of. He then went on to say the reason Trump failed is the Trump administration should look more to arms control rather than unlikely denuclearization. Quote, the hard reality is it's, if not impossible, highly unlikely that we will achieve in any near term the complete denuclearization of North Korea. I just don't see that as realistic in the near term. Now, that's the end of the quote. That's extremely important from the point of view of the North Koreans because the North Koreans made it clear that they would not disarm, but they were willing to engage in a step-by-step reciprocal uh, exchange or negotiated settlement with the United States with denuclearization as the final end goal, but where the United States would improve relations with North Korea first, that there would be a moratorium on nuclear weapons tests and other missile tests as as, as part of the quid pro quo. And that if there was a normalization of relations, then the other possible long-term goals of denuclearization could be discussed. It appears from this comment that was made not so long ago by Blinken, that at least Blinken is open to adopting the policy that Stephen Bagun, who was the advisor to Trump in the second and ultimately failed negotiations between U.S. and North Korea in Hanoi. Uh, Begin was representing that position within the foreign policy establishment that basically accepted North Korea's reciprocal step-by-step approach, as opposed to John Bolton and Pompeo, who convinced Trump, who actually was over his head, they convinced Trump at the last moment in Hanoi that he had to demand complete full denuclearization uh, in order to even start to talk about the lifting of sanctions on North Korea. They knew North Korea would not accept that. They knew North Korea would walk away. North Korea didn't, in fact, walk away. That was when the, the negotiations between the US and North Korea stopped. But the fact of the matter is, North Korea has not, as of yet, resumed nuclear weapons test. Uh, that would mean that Perhaps they're giving the Biden administration an opportunity to come in and and do what, if 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 Blinken is representing what the Biden uh, administration might be willing to do, re-enter these kind of negotiations with North Korea, I think the North Koreans would take that very, very seriously. So that's a story we're going to keep following. What we're trying to do here in this uh, show, in the socialist program, is... Is help our audience have a more detailed, more nuanced understanding of U.S. foreign policy? It's not all dependent on what the foreign policy planners think, because this is a big, complex world, and there's lots of alternatives to American hegemony. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of counter hegemonic forces who are limiting American power, and so even the policy planners' strategies and tactics for the empire. A don't happen in a vacuum, but instead happen within the context of real world politics. Here on The Socialist Program, we're going to keep offering our audience and and those who are listening to the show uh, that kind of detailed assessment of the U.S. empire uh, and its new strategic orientation or the continuous strategic orientation, but with a new administration coming into the White House as of January 20th, 2021. Now we turn to the struggle for justice in Denver, Aurora, Colorado. On Saturday, November 21st, last weekend, hundreds of people marched to demand that the state attorney general's investigation seek an indictment for murder in the killing of Elijah McLean. This march specifically targeted Attorney General Phil Weiser, The head of a state investigation launched by Colorado Governor Jared Polis in June. The issue is real accountability for the police who killed Elijah McLean. We're joined from Denver by Lillian House, Eliza Lucero, and Joel Northam. They were the leaders of a mass protest movement that shook the Denver Aurora area for several months, demanding justice. For Elijah McClain. They demanded that the Attorney General take action. And on September 17th, the Attorney General did take action, not by arresting the cops who killed Elijah McClain, but by arresting Lillian House, Eliza Lucero, Joel Northam, and charging them with heavy felonies. They spent eight days in solitary confinement before seeing a judge. They now face decades in prison Others were also arrested. Lillian House, Eliza Lucero, Joel Northam. Welcome. Uh, the three of you uh, have become—I don't—is it notorious or famous or infamous? Uh, you were the leaders of this massive, sort of unparalleled, unprecedented protest movement that went on for months in Aurora, Denver area demanding justice for Elijah McClain, demanding that the cops who killed Elijah McClain uh, be held accountable, that they be arrested, that they be charged, certainly that they be fired. You demanded that the district attorneys take action, and the district attorneys indeed did take action on September 17th of this year. Instead of arresting the cops who killed Elijah McClain, they arrested you while you were driving or raided your homes. They put you in jail they held you there in solitary confinement virtually for eight days, and you are all facing serious felony charges. Uh, Lillian, I know you're facing as long as 48 years in prison. Joel, almost that long. Eliza, very serious felonies. Uh, certainly I, I would have thought, and I think the this was the thinking of the DA, was that if you take the leaders of a mass peaceful protest movement and arrest them and put them in jail and hold them in solitary confinement and 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 have them facing decades in prison, well, they're going to shut up. They're going to stop protesting. They're going to go away. They're going to have to minimally focus on their own defense. But uh, this last Saturday, you were in the streets once again, again demanding justice. Talk about what happened. Lillian, let's start with you.
3: Yeah. Um, so, you know, following the repressive arrests on movement leaders. Um, We saw the governor now uh, quietly making these changes to the state investigation into Elijah's um, death, which is really the investigation which will determine if there are any criminal charges against the cops who killed Elijah. Because like you said, the local DA already closed his case and said there aren't going to be any charges. So the governor here um, made some adjustments to the wording of his order which could allow the investigating attorney general to come back with some really weak, watered down charges, less than criminal charges. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that you know Governor Polis and the investigating attorney general know that you know the movement is still here. Um, as much as they've tried to scare us out of the streets, we're still paying attention, and we're going to continue to take to the streets to continue to fight until we see justice, and that means criminal charges for the cops who murdered Elijah McLean, and they murdered him on camera. Uh,
1: Eliza Lucero, let's go to you. What what happened? What was the demonstration about who came? Uh, Was it successful? Just talk about what happened.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, like Lillian said, the demonstration was um, really about uh, making sure that these quiet changes that Polis made in this executive order into the investigation of Elijah McLean's death um, don't go unnoticed. Um, these, these changes um, could really result in uh, letting these uh, officers that murdered um, this innocent boy um, walk free and can continue patrolling our streets and, um, you know, while keeping their jobs and so we were there to say that that's really unacceptable. Anything less than criminal charges, anything less than murder charges, um, that's what this was. It was murder, um, is totally unacceptable. And uh, the event was was definitely successful. People, I mean, we're in the midst of you know a pandemic, and people are still saying like this is this is important, and we have to um, we have to come out and say that. Justice uh, means these killer cops uh, must get charges.
1: Joel, let's talk about the case, your case, and the case for uh, Liza Lucero and Lillian House. Uh, Again, let's help the audience understand what exactly happened. You were arrested on September 17th. I remember it vividly because I was actually talking to you on the phone, and you were talking also to two different attorneys We were all listening as you talked to us and uh, these cops were at your door pounding the door and you were saying, and they were saying, let us in or whatever they were saying. And you were like, show me a warrant. And they were like, no. Um, And they had like an MRAP military vehicle outside. Um, Again, all of that happened on September 17th when you and Lillian and Eliza were arrested. Again, just help the audience understand what were, what was the role that you were playing along with the other defendants in the, in the protests? And then what actually specifically happened to you on September 17th?
5: Right. Um, well, when, uh, the first wave of COVID was going on, I was currently in Colorado Springs. It was, you know, it's a place that's about 45 minutes South of Denver. Um, and I came up to Denver, um, um, to help uh, the PSL branch there um, with the protest movement because things were in full swing. The George Floyd uprising was was really kicking off. Um, and so my role was to be somebody who was on the mic, uh, giving speeches, hyping up the crowd. Um, and, yeah, I was sort of to provide some uh, direction at the protest movement or at, at the protests that were happening. Um, and it was a, yeah it's i mean it, it that's still going on that that's still something that i that i do um even at the protest last saturday um what happened on the 17th was it, it was kind of confusing because we got a call we got yeah we got a call early in the morning saying that uh, our comrade russ he had been arrested um he had gone to jail but he had been uh uh, but he, he had been out and so we're like, okay, something's going on. Is something going on? We were really, we were kind of unsure if this was accidental or if this was like an actual targeted thing, um, that they were coming after all of us. And then once we heard that Lillian, uh, got arrested, but she was driving, I was like, okay, something's up. We need to figure out what's going on here. And that's at that moment, like we were on our phones, we were on our computers, we were documenting everything that was going on. I'm sitting in my living room. Um, you know, we're trying to find out, okay, where's Lillian at? She's going, um, and then my roommate comes out and says, hey, uh, there's a tank right outside of the apartment, right? So I'm like, uh, what, okay. I look out my window, lo and behold, there is a military style MRAP vehicle, the same kind that they used in Afghanistan and Iraq. There's a cop standing here, like sitting, each one of those vehicles has like a little, uh, it's like a little hatch. There's a cop standing out there just looking right at my apartment, he sees me look out the window. He you can tell he's, uh says something in his radio. Within 10 seconds, I just hear this loud banging on my door. Joel, police, come on out, come on out. At this point, I'm like, oh, yep, it's about that time, I suppose. I got on the phone. I'm in contact with you and, and the two lawyers. Um, I'm asking them to see a warrant because it's just like, yo, like I don't know... Like what is this? I'm not sure. They're saying they don't have to. They don't have to produce a warrant at all. I'm asking them, "Where's the warrant? I want to see a warrant." They keep on banging on the door. Um, this goes on for a good three to five minutes or so. At this point, like they sound like they're escalating. They sound like they're about to place charges on the door or bust it down. Um, it was at that point, uh, on the advice of the lawyers that I was speaking to, that um, they'll trap me through the system, but I should just surrender at that point. I surrender. Come outside. They immediately take my phone. That was the first thing that they took. I did have a, a pattern passcode on it, though, um, and I shut it off. They are asking me questions. Hey, do you want to speak to a detective? What's going on? Like, do you want to let's you know? Do you want to speak to a detective? Do you want to speak to a detective? They keep asking me that multiple times, and at this point, I'm saying no. I don't want to speak to the detective. I reserve my right to be silent. And they still like okay sure, but you sure you don't want to speak to a detective? I'm like yes, I'm sure I don't want to speak to a detective. They must have thought this is like my first rodeo or something, but I know not to talk to cops. So uh, at that point, they drag me out of the front of the apartment. All the neighbors are watching. They search me not once but twice, um, throw me in a cop car, and then that's it. I spent the next eight days in jail.
1: It's amazing, actually. I mean the the law stipulates, uh, Lillian that people have to come before a judge, you know, within, it it differs in different locales, but certainly within 48 hours, you have to come before a judge and you have to be able to hear your charges, face your accuser, have an arraignment, plead guilty or not guilty. Then if there's a cash bail, that could be set or you could be released on your own recognizance, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you, all of you were held, the three of you were held for eight days before coming before a judge and this is in con- time of covid the jails are uh, under covid restrictions you're in virtual solitary confinement um, and during that eight days I have to say while the police were trying to scare you intimidate you for the the you're all members of the party for socialism and liberation and uh, you were targeted because you were the leaders of these peaceful protests while these these extraordinary, sort of repression was being placed on you, uh, this massive response of support grew up. I mean, 15,000 people signed a petition. A group called Trade Unionists for Justice in Denver was formed, and you know, labor federations, including the Denver Area Labor Federation, but others too, signed on demanding that uh, charges be dropped. It, what what it turned out, it seemed to me, was that as they were refusing to do what the law requires, which is to bring you before a judge, people, people understood this to be a political prosecution and a political persecution against the leaders of a peaceful protest movement. And now there's both a national and I would say an international movement uh, demanding your freedom. And of course, you have a legal team and you know, things will go forward, et cetera. But I wanna I wanna talk about what its impact has been on, on the movement in Denver and Aurora. Uh, it seems to me that there's been a lot of repression around the country. So many people have been arrested. Thousands have been arrested, maybe not with as heavy charges as you, although in some cases maybe. Uh, But, you know, while it had the effect of sort of disintegrating or at least setting back some of the local movements, it seems to me from what I could see, your organizational capacity was such that it actually catalyzed uh, another layer of resistance. And in fact, uh, people were in the streets demanding your release in big demonstrations even like a day or two after you were arrested on September 17th. Let's just talk about the dynamic of that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that in a way they kind of did us a favor by making this case just so nakedly political by charging us with such extreme charges, dozens of felonies and misdemeanors for peaceful protests held, you know, across months, across the summer. Then, like you said, um, just blatantly violating our due process rights by holding us for eight days—you know, during COVID, we were in virtual solitary c- confinement for that time. I think it made it really plain to the movement here um, that this this is a political prosecution, and you know, we're looking at the a lot of these charges. The most extreme charges are, um, you know, filed by the very DA who uh, refused to file charges against Elijah's killers the very DA who we've been bringing all this attention onto throughout the summer. And so I think, you know, for the movement here and across the country, like you said, even around the world, people are seeing that this is very dangerous, that we have, you know, peaceful protests, challenging, you know, authorities, and then those authorities using their power to come back and, you know, like restrict the the most basic democratic First Amendment rights of these protesters and really try and put us in prison for decades. And, you know, if they're successful in this, I mean, we're hearing from all different kinds of organizers that they're concerned about what it means if um, your First Amendment rights are restricted to, um, you know, really expression and assembly and dissent that, that doesn't have any power, that doesn't actually pose any threat to the people in power. Um, we had, you know, there's the Denver Area Labor Federation here, which is um, a huge union federation that represents 90,000 workers. And um, they unanimously passed a resolution standing with us. And I think, you know, part of the the wording of their resolution was really powerful. It asks like, um, so we're charged with kidnapping for holding a protest outside of a police station. And they ask, you know, if that is kidnapping, what does that make a, a picket? And I think that's such a good, Um, question to be asking you know here what are the implications if this case is successful Um, because throughout the summer you know what we've been demanding is justice for our community and we've been leading this you know truly thoroughly peaceful movement Um, if that is criminalized to this extent that's very serious
1: that's lillian house eliza lucero let me let me turn to you you know you're the Denver Area Labor Federation is just one now of several citywide labor federations that have passed resolutions demanding your release, and they're they're making reference to the history of how these police persecutions and prosecutions against protesters has been a primary tool against labor uh, in Colorado, where all of you are. Of course, the the Denver Area Labor Federation resolution makes reference to the the time period time period of the Ludlow massacre uh, where you know workers organizing for basic rights I mean basic rights to unionize basic rights to to form organization basic rights to to be able to to have a decent wage and to feed their family those workers were literally massacred by uh, corporations and companies and their and their goons and the cops and you know the labor movement has the very very important slogan, an injury to one is an injury to all, meaning that when one worker or one union or one group of protesters are targeted, it's an obligation to for everyone to rally together, to, to form a mutual defense because an injury to one is indeed an injury to all. If the, if the oppressors uh, and those engaged in repression can succeed against one, it can go to the next one and the next one. Um, let's just talk about what it means from a working class point of view. You yourself are a worker. You're, a, you're a, as I understand it, you're a, uh, a waiter. And um, the conditions for workers in Denver and conditions for workers around the country have become very hard. People have lost their jobs because of the mismanagement by the government of COVID-19 because the way the capitalist system is set up that if a company goes out of business, the workers are basically well, you know, it's kind of tough luck. You're on your own, or maybe possibly if you succeed, you can get unemployment insurance. But even with that, people don't aren't making the kind of money they made even six months ago, or they're completely unemployed. And it's, I think it's so important because it seems to me that what's going to happen in the coming months, coming weeks, months, perhaps years, is intensifying struggles by working people, for justice on many, many different layers, police brutality being one of them, but for wages and benefits and the right to unionize. And as a worker, just talk about what it means to you to have so much labor support, including the Denver Area Labor Federation.
4: Having all this labor support around us has been incredible. I think that it really speaks to how like Lillian was saying, how blatantly political this attack really is. These labor federations and just everyone in the community that's been signing on in solidarity, saying, you know, these charges are absolutely unjust and a violation of First Amendment rights. They, these are people that necess- not weren't necessarily super political. In the early months of, uh, you know, the BLM protests, but now seeing that First Amendment rights are being challenged, more and more people are, are saying that's absolutely uh, unacceptable. And I, I totally agree with you, Brian. I think that with the with the COVID nineteen pandemic, the mismanagement of it by our government, it's it's just running rampant, taking lives and taking um, jobs. And so, seeing the the movement of of workers that are standing behind us and that are really organized and ready to put up a fight to demand that um, not only our constitutional rights don't get violated, but that we uh, you know are provided with the, the basic necessities to live and survive during the rest of this pandemic. Um, it, it's really strong and it's really powerful.
1: Yeah, I want to encourage our audience, go to the website Trade Unionists for that's the numeral four, justice.org, Trade Unionists for justice.org, uh, You can read the statement from the Denver Area Labor Federation. And then just the list of signers, uh, Josh Downey, as you mentioned, president of the Denver Area Labor Federation, Tiffany Choi, President Denver Classroom Teachers Association, uh, Susan Solomon, President United Educators of San Francisco. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. There's so much labor support and, of course, community support. And you know, Joel, let's let's go back to how it all started. And and again, the demonstration that you all had on Saturday. This started as a movement. An elementary movement for justice because Elijah McClain was doing nothing. He was committing no crime. He was grabbed by the police. He was brutalized by the police. They choked him. They had, you know, EMT people administer drugs to him. He died. He's 23 years old, minding his own business. An unarmed black man minding his own business. And you guys, all of you were demanding justice for Elijah and his family, that the police who killed him be held in, uh, to account. Now you have a situation where uh, Governor Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, as you say in your Facebook message, and this is what prompted your demonstration, quietly loosened the scope of the investigation, meaning into the charges about or into the possible charges against the cops who killed Elijah to investigate for offenses, quote, not just criminal activity, close quote, related to Elijah's death. And as you say in your Facebook page, opening up the possibility for him to come back with watered down charges against the killers like we saw in Breonna Taylor's case. Now, here you all are charged with kidnapping, these other felonies facing literally decades in prison, almost a half a century in prison and you're suggesting that the governor, trying to get out from under the mass pressure that you helped create by this protest movement, saying, "Yeah, we'll do something against the co- killer cops, but it won't be murder. It won't be, you know, either first degree or second degree murder. It could be doing something else." And you reference Brianna Taylor's case. I want to help the audience understand exactly what you mean because uh, the police officers were, I think, indicted the Brianna Taylor's case, but not for shooting Brianna Taylor.
5: Right. There was like um there was this uh, popular tweet that went around it was saying that something it was it said something along the lines of the cops were charged uh and and indicted for the shots that missed, basically, um, with this whole wanton endangerment thing that they were that they were actually indicted for. Um and so like just the fact that Jared Polish took time out of his day under cover of a Democratic Party election victory and under cover of the repression that's been going on against us um, under the sort of misappropriated belief that, oh, the movement has ebbed so much that we can start, you know, capitulating to some of the pressure of, of the police unions and whatnot. He took time out of his day to change this language. And just the way that they were able to water down um, what they indicted the cops in Louisville for, we would be just absolutely naive to think that, that this is, that, that is not what Polis is setting himself up to do right now or setting up the, uh, AG Phil Weiser to do right now. Um, and so like we, the thought behind this protest was just to let them know that, yeah, we, you are on notice. Like we are still watching this. We've seen this pattern play out again and again and again. Like for those of us that have been, you know, organizing in the streets for the better part of the decade, we've seen just the, the lengths that they, that they will go to, to let cops who murder black people walk like it's 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 astonishing it's like it doesn't matter how clear cut the situation is it doesn't matter if the person is on video um you know if the incident is on video completely they will go out of their way to do that and so we would just a lot of the impetus behind organizing this protest was just the fact that we would be you know completely remiss if we just let that slide um and and let them know that yeah they can just meddle in this without without any sort of response from us.
1: That's the voice of Joel Northam. We're also joined by Eliza Lucero and Lillian House, three defendants uh, who were arrested on September 17th. They were the leaders of the protest movement in Aurora, Denver, Colorado, demanding justice for Elijah McLean. They they are now enmeshed in a legal process. They're facing decades in prison. Lillian, we're going to wrap up. Uh, I want to thank the three of you for joining us. But if people want to do the right thing, which is to show support for you, uh, to sign the petition or if you're a trade unionist to sign up with the other trade unionists, I mentioned the Trade org is one website, uh, or if people want to make a donation to support the political and legal defense effort, uh, where do they go? How do they do it?
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, if people want to sign the petition to drop the charges, that is at pslweb.org slash drop the charges. Um, if you want to donate to our legal fund, that is at pslweb.org slash donate. And then the number for Denver. So donate for Denver or Venmo. Donate for Denver. Again, the number four. Um, and if you are a trade unionist or um, you're part of a labor organization, we really encourage you to you know, add your voice to this demand to drop the charges. Like Brian said, visit tradeunionist4denver.org. Again, the number four. Um, and yeah, please stay tuned. Um, you know, We've still got months ahead of us in this struggle. You can continue to follow developments in our case on Facebook or on Instagram, where we're um, Denver PSL.
1: All right, very good. We will continue to follow this story and help all of you build defense. A critical case, an injury to one is indeed an injury to all. This is an epic free speech fight. We were joined by Lillian House, Eliza Lucero, and Joel Northam from Denver.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.